Amen. Would y'all thank Scott and Renee with me? Thank you, guys. We are so glad that you're here. If you're joining us online as well, we're glad you're here. If you've got a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 28. And just as you're turning there, I'll say I really love what Scott reminded us of there in particular as he was reflecting on some of the kids that they have the opportunity to serve at Bethesda Mission, just that reminder that every person bears God's image, every single one. That means that there's something in them that God is uh, loving to draw forward and to redeem and to restore uh, so that he might glorify himself through it. I mean, what a good reminder that we are to look at every person as someone who bears the image of God. So Scott, thanks for reminding us of that. And it deepens our desire to serve And that's what we're going to reflect on today. We have been thinking through Advent about why Jesus came. In his own words, we've been trying to ask that simple question and look at places in Scripture where Jesus tells us, this is is why I've come. And we saw on week one of Advent, as we thought about it, the answer to this question, we looked at a text in John where Jesus said, I've come to do the Father's will what it meant for the divine Son to do the will of the divine Father and to submit himself. And last week, we our kids helped us through the Kids for Him musical really reflect upon Jesus coming into the world, God incarnate, God in the flesh. And so this week, we're going to reflect upon what it means that Jesus came to serve. And we'll look at this text in Matthew chapter 20, where he came to serve. And as I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about, as a dad, quite often, I will take very mundane, ordinary moments and use them to teach really big principles, right? Have we experienced this? Yes, you had a dad maybe who did this. I can't decide if my kids like that less or Brussels sprouts less. When I take moments like you need to make your bed, otherwise you won't learn to obey God in your entire life. And they're thinking, it's just a bed, dad. It's some sheets pulled up a little higher, a little further. How are you equivalenting, making this equivalent to learning to obey God? And, you know, I mean, uh, eat your eat your vegetables, do this, do that. There's always a bigger principle behind it. And all the dad said, amen. That's right. There's something big behind it, right? And so my kids, you know, there's, there's the amazing kids, but you get the occasional eye roll when you sort of uh, make these moments that big. But I'll tell you what, as we look at today's text, here's what I found out. I'm in really good company because Jesus did the same thing. So take that, my kids, all right? They're not in here, so I can say that. All right. Matthew 20, 28. Now, listen, here's what I want you to see. Jesus is going to get approached by a mom. And this mom's going to have a request for her boys, right? Like every good mom. She comes to him. She's got, a, she's got a request. And the way Jesus is going to respond to that is he's going to answer that specific question. But what he's going to do is he's going to go, there's something bigger at work here that I want you to see. So much so that he's going to use the moment to speak about why he even came into the world as the son of God. Right? He wants to teach a, very, a much bigger lesson. So let's read it together. And we'll kind of walk our way through it. So beginning in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 20, and we'll have the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible in your hands today. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two of the disciples. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. Now, I can't decide if the kneeling is like true humility or if it's a little bit of a, um, I'm going to kind of faux hu- humble myself before I ask for something that's going to be really big, all right? And then she says, and he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, 
say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Is that a big request? Huge. Right now, Jesus sees it and he goes, okay. And then he asks a question and he doesn't ask it of the mom. He asks it of the boys and they're going to answer, which tells me maybe they put their mom up to this. Maybe they said, mom, why don't you go ask this? Because we know we probably shouldn't ask it for ourselves. So why don't you go ask it for us? Like every good mom, she's all about getting her boys a good seat at the table. All right. And Jesus answered, you don't know, or you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now he's referring there to his death. Are you able to drink the cup of suffering, the cup of sacrifice that I am going to drink? And that's a really important question. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. That is a foolish answer. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Now here comes the lesson. But Jesus called them to him, all 12 of them, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones, in other words, those who are in those positions of authority, their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, they rejoice in authority for authority's sake. They love to point out, I'm in charge, you're not. And to use that authority in a way that it serves them to use that authority. That's what Jesus is saying happens among those who don't know God. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great, and I take that phrase great not to mean just greatness of character, although that's true, not just great in the eyes of God, although that's true too, but in the context, the greatness is the authority, the position of authority. So if you're going to be one who is great, one who holds some kind of authority, if you're going to be great among you, must be, the one who would be great, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now notice, he's just gone from servant to slave. He's gone from one who is sort of Uh, He's going lower and lower. That's the point of going from servant to slave, right? So he's saying, you, if you want to be great, you must go low. You must embrace humility. You must embrace lowliness. And then he says this, whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as, here's the crux of the whole thing, even as the son of man came not to be served, but what, church? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me point out two things in the last verse. Number one, he highlights his cross as the culmination of his entire life. It all moved in the direction of that ultimate act of service, is what he's saying. I came not to be served, but to serve. Here's the ultimate expression of that, when I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many people. If you've never heard this news, let us be the first to share it with you. Jesus' death on the cross is the opportunity to be reconciled to God for everyone who believes. It is the declaration that you can know God and be restored to him through faith, not through any works, not through intelligence, not through any gifts or money or anything else, not by all the effort that you could put forth, 
but just simply by believing that he has paid for your sins. They have a penalty and it is death and separation from God forever. And he has taken that price, paid it for you. All you need to do is believe in him. And his whole life is towards that ransom, that act of service, that ultimate display of humility and lowliness. Now he's even further highlighting how humble and low you must be in order to be great by using that phrase son of man at the beginning of the verse. That's straight from the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy that Daniel gives where he refers to the son of man in the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is God the Father. The son of man is a declaration of who the Messiah would be. Uh, And there's this relationship between the ancient of days and the, son of, and the Son of Man. And the reason Jesus uses that term here is because every good Jew would have been familiar with that prophecy. And when you think Son of Man, if you're a Jewish man or woman or child in this day and age, in that day and age, what you would think is the Son of Man in Daniel is this exalted figure. It's this person who the ancient of days, God himself, anoints and says, you are worthy of praise and worthy of honor. And so when they would think of that, they would think, yeah, oh yeah, son of man, that's really important person. That's someone who is going to be uh, given praise and honor and at the right hand of the ancient of days. So that's the picture. And he says, the son of man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, which would be a shocking statement in and of itself because the son of man should be served. He didn't come to be served but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he starts with high and he moves to low throughout it. Now, do you see the principle that he's teaching? See, this mom comes and she asks a question for her boys and it's a bit of a self-aggrandizing question. It's a bit of a, give us privilege, give us status, give us authority. And Jesus says, you need to understand why I came. I did not come so that you could ask questions like this one. I did not come so that you would be made much of or think about life's purpose as getting more authority, getting more privilege. I came to serve and you must do the same. That's the principle that Jesus is teaching us. So in answer to that question today, why did Jesus come? We wanna reflect upon that simple truth. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Now, I said a few weeks ago that Advent in the, rhythm of a Christ, in the rhythm of the Christian life is really, I think, and there's more than this, but I think meant to do four primary things often. And if you have spiritual rhythms, both in your daily life, in your weekly life, and in your annual life, then Advent should be one of those annual rhythms. Why do we take time every Christmas season to reflect upon the Incarnation? why God came in the form of a human being, became human and came to dwell among us and then to redeem us through a death on the cross. I would say the four reasons why in the sort of church history and the way we think theologically is to help us increase our sense of wonder, our sense of mystery, our sense of anticipation and longing. Those four things are needed in the Christian life and Advent in a unique way has an ability of doing those things for us. So that's what I'd love to do today. We're gonna use that as our outline. Wonder, mystery, anticipation, and longing. And let's ask the question, how does knowing that Jesus came to serve, not to be served, how does that help increase each of those things? How does it increase our sense of wonder? How does it increase our sense of mystery? 
How does it increase our sense of anticipation, longing? All sort of necessary vitamins in the Christian life, if you will, yes? Things that we need to take up and take in. So let's think about it that way. And let me just say now, if you walk out today, my, my ambition is this. My ambition is not, as we examine, I don't think it's Jesus is in this text, as we think about Jesus coming to serve, and we all know that we are to be like him. Is that a fair statement? Yes? Yes. A servant is not greater than his master. If he came to do something, then we are to do the same. We are to follow his example. So we all know that. But my goal today would not be for you to walk out and say, I'm going to add five service-oriented things to my calendar. I'm going to jam-pack my calendar even fuller with service. Now, perhaps you have no intentional way that you're serving somebody else, that you're putting their needs ahead of your own, that you've, you've put it in your life as a regular rhythm. I would say, please do that. You, you need to do that. But that's not my ambition today. What I want to ask you to do is let the Spirit of God examine the, the condition of your heart as it relates to humility and lowliness because I'm really not that interested in you adding more service-oriented activities to your schedule to be more proud of how service-oriented you are or to feel like people need me. Look how great I am, that I'm so needed in so many places. I'm not interested in that. As your pastor, I want to invite you to examine your heart. When you are made lower, how does your heart react? When you are given the opportunity to embrace humility or to go forward in the path of arrogance? Which way do you go? What's in your heart? You'll serve in all the ways God wants you to serve as your heart embraces humility and lowliness. I'm deeply convinced of it. The Spirit will guide you into every act of service He desires you to do to meet the needs of another and help them know and love Jesus. You will do that as your heart and as my heart embraces and loves the humility and lowliness of our King who said, I came not to be served, but to serve. That's our desire to reflect upon that today. So let's take up that first work of Advent, which is wonder. Let's think about wonder. Well, what does it mean to, to have wonder in your life? I might summarize it this way. Wonder is the sense of awe that we have over the the bigness, the grandness, or the beauty of something. When we look at it, we have this sense of I am in awe of the, of the sort of shocking grandioseness of what's in front of me. And when we think about the incarnation, we are thinking about the grand act of God on high departing from his heavenly throne and embracing and coming into the world and not just coming into it, but coming into it in humility and lowliness from a throne to a manger, from a crown of gold to a crown of thorns, eventually. It is the greatest act of, and this is a theological term, we use it differently, we use this language differently now, but it's the greatest act of condescension. We use condescension to mean to speak down to someone, but condescension theologically just means to be worthy of this and to lower yourself to this. That's what condescension means. When we say God condescended in Jesus, we mean he lowered himself. Now, How does then reflecting on Jesus coming to serve, not to be served, how does it increase our sense of wonder at who God is and what he's done, the incarnation? And I would argue that it it increases our sense of wonder in this way. When you think about the fact that Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served, 
it's through that service that Jesus accomplished a cosmic level of work, a work so big and so bold and so significant that he is restoring all of creation from the stars in the sky to every particle of dust on the ground. He is bringing about their restoration. And how is he doing it? Through an act of power? Is he restoring it through an act of education and imparting a lot of information? He has brought about a cosmic scale work through an act of humility and lowliness. You want to see your world change? Try that. He did not bring change at a cosmic level through some grand act of power. He brought it about by lowering himself. That shocks me. The best comparison I can give you that I could think of this week was to say this. Imagine that I said, I want you to build me a 10,000 square foot house. And then I gave you a toothpick and said, do it with this. That is the equivalent of cosmic level change, cosmic level redemption, purchasing thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people into a restored relationship with God, redeeming souls and doing it through death on a cross doing it through poverty in a manger, doing it through namelessness and lowliness. The tool doesn't fit the work. And yet God says, this is how great I am. I will accomplish the greatest work in scale, magnitude, and substance. I will accomplish it through lowliness and service. Now, when I reflect upon that, it makes me wonder sends me into awe. Now, let me just think about a couple of implications of that for us. Let's just get down to brass tacks. Let's make this so, I hope, applicable. Because I don't want you to just go, oh, yes, I I wonder. That is good. I want your mind to to sort of expand. I want you to think broadly. I want you to ponder the, the work of God and be in awe of it. But let me make a few implications for us when we think about that reality, the cosmic level scale of God's work purchased or brought about through this tool of service. Here's three implications. Number one, it means there's no right use of authority that is not service. Now, listen, I, I am hesitant usually to try to use like always and never, right? If you've been through like marriage counseling 101, you know, like, please stop saying always and never. You always do this. You never do that. That will really damage your marriage, right? Don't say those kinds of things. Right, so I'm um, always a little hesitant to be like, always and never, but I think in this case it actually fits. I tried to ponder all week this week, is there any way that I could ever use whatever authority God gives me, is there any way I could use it that would be different than service that I could say is valid and right? And I could not come up with a single example. I don't think you can. I think the only right use of authority is service. And I think that's the implication of Jesus saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. Now think about what that means. It doesn't mean leaders don't make hard decisions. It doesn't mean if you're in a position of authority, you don't make challenging, you don't challenge those and say you need to do that. It doesn't mean you don't give orders. It doesn't mean you don't give direction. But what it does mean is that every order, every direction, every, every approach to every person underneath your authority has to always be checked against this desire to serve? Am I doing this in order to serve 
the people that I am placed in authority over? And if the answer is no, then it's the wrong use. It's the wrong approach. You're going the wrong way. Would you agree? You can ponder a little bit further. I had to really wrestle with it. Is it always? I think it is. That's implication number one. There's no right use of authority that is not service. Implication number two. Implication number two is that true authority only comes through service. True authority only comes through service. Now, I watch young leaders all the time grasp at greater authority, and it's very natural for young leaders to want to do that, right? I I want the promotion. I want the position. I want, and it's because they feel made to do it, and they're probably right quite often that they are made to do it. I can see it in them, right? And I think, yeah, absolutely. But the pathway to that authority is not to grasp at it. It's not to go, it's not to try and take hold of it and say, I, I want that. The only pathway to real authority, and listen, you can get positional authority by manipulation, manipulation. You can get it through self-promotion. You can get it by sort of tooting your own horn and, and trumpeting your, your merits and your values. You can get positional authority in this world by putting on a show through ego, desire for self-advancement. You can, you can get it. That's not real authority. Real authority, true authority, the kind of authority that makes people want to seek you out and know what you think, the kind of authority that makes people want to follow you, the kind of authority that makes people go, I'm so glad they have authority in my life, that kind of authority only comes through humility and lowliness and service. It's the only pathway to the true kind of authority. That means some of us might have positional authority, but no real authority. And some of you have no positional authority, but have great authority because you have embraced humility and lowliness and people want to hear from you. They want to follow you. They want to know what you think. Which by the way, if you're waiting on perhaps God to bring that promotion, that positional authority into your life, don't pursue that. The people around you, they'll want to follow you, listen to you, if you will serve them. If you will make yourself low, and if you will humble yourself, it's the only pathway to true authority. There is no other. The third implication is that every act of service in the name of Jesus is consequential. It matters. I wonder how often you've dismissed the kind of service you give as small or insignificant. And I would encourage you today to recognize that if Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served, that every act of service in his name is of massive consequence. From every dish unloaded, to every vacuum run, to every blade of grass mowed, to every, let me hold the door for you as you go in. Welcome, glad you're here. Every act of service is no small thing. It is a demonstration of the way that God has brought about a cosmic level redemption of his entire creation. That's what you're displaying when you hold the door for someone else. You might not have time to explain that whole thing while you open the door for them but it's true. Every act of service has cosmic significance. It's amazing, isn't it? I hope that helps increase your sense of wonder at what God has done through service and lowliness. The second is mystery. Now, this is a little different. They're related to one another. Wonder is what we feel when we think, man, I'm in awe of 
usually the, the scale or the beauty of something. Mystery is what we feel when we think God can do anything any way he chooses. And my job is to yield to that. Now, how many of you say God has worked in your life in a way that you did not expect? Yeah, exactly. And he works in the world in ways we don't expect. Again and again, this is one of the hardest things. It's one of the hardest things to to pursue a path that you know is right and righteous and have it not come to fruition. And then to say, but God, I don't understand why that didn't come. It seems like evil is even winning the day, possibly. And yet to say, I know that you are at work bringing something about. And one of the, the very obvious things about the incarnation is that everybody expected God to send the Messiah in a way different than he did. Everyone thought the Messiah was going to help conquer Rome, release people, release Israel from political uh, slavery, essentially, servitude to another nation. They thought he was going to be a conquering king. They thought he would be the biggest, the strongest, the baddest. I mean, he would be the guy that everyone would look at, like in the Old Testament, they looked at King Saul and said, he's the tallest and best looking, let's make him king. They thought that's what the Messiah would be, and he was something very different. Isaiah tells us he wasn't much to look at. He was going to accomplish redemption, not through conquering, not through power, but through what, church? Sacrifice, service, lowliness. Now, here's the point of that. I want you to see that the, that the way of God, oh, I forgot to make a point earlier. You know, sometimes I get up here and I get two points deep and I'm like too far past what I meant to say. I shouldn't even be saying this now because you're like, who cares? You missed the opportunity. The off-ramp, you missed it. Keep going. Sorry, I looked at my notes and I saw it. I'm going to keep going because we got communion. All right. No, I'm totally out of it. All right. Mystery. We're on mystery. As we think about mystery, here's what I want you to understand is God is going to do things in your life to bring his kingdom in a way that is different than you would expect. And you have to learn, I have to learn, to yield to that. And some of you right now, I can see, you're like, because there's something happening right now in your life that you're like, I don't know how you're going to use this. I don't understand it. But I've, I guess you are. This understanding of mystery means that one of the greatest questions any Christian must learn to ask, and it must be asked regularly, is whatever is transpiring in your life, what is God's purpose in it? I'm learning to ask the question, why, what do you want me to know from this? What do you want me to learn? What is it that I'm saying? Now, that doesn't mean that I don't mourn sin and its consequences as if, oh, that was right or good or not at all. But it does mean that even when I might mourn or lament the consequences of sin, its results in my life or others' sin against me, and I might lament it, I still have to ask, And yet, God, what is your purpose for me in this? What would you have me learn from this? What must I learn to do or to be? And the answer is to embrace lowliness. Now, it's possible. We need to ask a couple questions, okay? So here's the first question I want to ask you to ask. Is it possible that the God who sees everything and has already made certain that his kingdom will come Is it possible that he will use things you don't expect in ways you don't expect to bring his kingdom into your life? That's the message of 
I who redeem everything through this tool of service. It's a mystery. Here's the beauty. God has already told us how everything will end. Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. That's what uh, we're told in the New Testament. Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. The mystery hidden for ages that we didn't know how he'd accomplish redemption. Christ has revealed that. And yet, and he's also revealed that he will come again and he will renew all creation. He will restore us and everything will be made new. But we have no idea what's gonna happen between then between now and then, right? Do you know what will happen tomorrow or the next day? Do you have any concept of what political turmoil will happen, what kingdom will rise or what kingdom will fall? Do you know what will happen in your life, what types of loss, what types of wins? Do you have any concept of what will happen in your life between now and the day Jesus returns? No, you don't. You don't know if you'll still be here, if he's coming tomorrow, if he's coming 10 years from now. You don't know if you'll be long dead and gone before he comes. There is mystery to be embraced in following Jesus because we don't know what he will do, but we know that it's all moving in the direction of his second coming. It's all moving to his ultimate victory. So we know that and we embrace the mystery that is daily life here and now. And we learn to ask, what do you want me to know or learn from this? So let me ask this question. Is God doing something that you're pushing against because you can't see that it's his way? You can't see how the way you wanted it to be is not his way, but the way he's made it be. And you think, I want it the other way. He said, no, I'm bringing it this way. Is he bringing his kingdom into your life in a way that you are pushing against right now because it's a mystery to you? Are you resisting humble, lowly service as the place that God is leading you? Are you resisting anything he's doing because you don't want to be made low? Because you don't want to be more humble? Because it's too hard to imagine lowering yourself in that way. Is there a relationship that's broken in your life that can only be healed through humility, service, sacrifice, and lowliness? Will you embrace it? Will you move in that direction? Will you see that the incarnation is a declaration that the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve? Last question I'll ask about this in terms of mystery. We don't always understand why God this way versus that way. Is the act of service you're giving currently the one you're comfortable with, but not the one that's needed? I see this a lot. Marriage is an easy example. Husbands, I talk to y'all more, so I'm gonna talk to you, but ladies, I could come to y'all as well, okay? So don't get high and mighty on me here. I find this a lot in marriages where I'm talking to husbands and they're checking the boxes of service. They are serving, but they're serving through doing acts of service and what their spouse, what their wife really needs is someone who will connect with them emotionally. Someone who will sit on the couch and ask how they're feeling, what's going on in their heart, what the condition, what their, what their, what their day brought to them at an emotional level. And it's hard often, it can be, for us to do that. And so we think, but I am serving because we're serving over here in this way, but the act of service God is calling us into, the one that's really needed to bring his kingdom into our marriage and the peace and joy and hope of it is something very different. And I see some spouses looking at each other and I'm deeply uncomfortable that I've now created a big time conversation that's gonna happen later. 
Don't just check the boxes of service. Ask what direction God is leading you in humility and loneliness. And look, it's okay to say, I'm not good at that, but I will commit to get better. I'm gonna try to keep getting better. I'm not just going to say, well, no, I'm serving you. That's enough. I, honestly, the other way around, I didn't, do this, I didn't do this in the last service, but I will say, ladies in particular, wives in particular, some of you are saying, I'm checking the boxes of service, but what your husband needs is to feel that you respect him. He needs you to say, I respect you. I will honor you. I think highly of you. He needs you to express that. And just because you handled the kids well or cooked the meal well or, or you know, whatever your, your things are around the house that you're doing, that may not be the one that's needed. Maybe he would happily sacrifice all those just to hear you say, I respect you. I admire you. Is the act of service you're giving the one that's needed or just the one that you're comfortable with so that you can feel like you have made yourself low? But there's a different kind of lowliness that God is inviting you to embrace and to take up. Now, let me talk about the last, anticipation and longing. Anticipation and longing. Anticipation is just, let's be really simple about it. Anticipation is being excited about something in the future. It's just the, it's the excitement that we feel about something. And longing is the ache we feel because it hasn't come yet, right? So I always think about it this way. Our family tucks away a little money every year so that we can spend a little time at the beach. There's a specific spot we always like to go to. And then we, we book that usually around this time of year. And it's pretty exciting, right? I have that sense of anticipation, like, yes, we booked it. I cannot wait. And then I remember that it's eight months until we get to go there. And it, the ache sets in. You're like, oh. And especially because it's winter, you know, and you're just like, oh, remember what it's like to wear shorts and like actually see the sun? Those are fun things, right? So anticipation is the excitement that we feel and longing is the ache that we feel because it hasn't come yet. And when Jesus says, I came to serve, not to be served, there's a way that that helps us increase our anticipation and longing. Now, let me say, I don't think we're very good at this in an Amazon Prime, have it tomorrow, same day delivery kind of way. We don't develop a lot of longing when everything we order is there today or tomorrow, the next day. So there's a challenge to overcome. But I I actually also think another challenge is sometimes, so we don't have to long very much for things that aren't of much consequence, like a new shirt, but when it comes to things that actually we really need, like better mental health or freedom from anxiety or addiction, those are things I don't think we have, I think we have a deep ache and longing about those, but no sense of anticipation because we don't see that they'll ever go away. We don't see that there will ever be a, a resolution to those things. And I say both those things to recognize that we're just probably not great. We have some hurdles to overcome to getting anticipation and longing in our life. Let me say that longing without anticipation is really crushing. If you have no sense of anticipation, excitement, that it is going to come, then the ache, the longing that happens through needing it, wanting it is crushing because there's no certainty of it coming. And go back to what we said earlier. This is one of the reasons why Jesus chose to, in his word, tell us what the end will be. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to tell us, I will come again. And when I come again, I will establish my kingdom on earth and it will look like this. And there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears. Everything will be perfectly restored. Sin will be done away with. He could have left us in the dark about all that and said, trust me and follow me. I've got it covered. 
And if that would have been his choice, what would our right response have been? Yes, we trust. But in his wisdom and in his mercy and in his love, what did he do? He told us what the end of the story is so that we could anticipate it, be excited about it, and long for it. And the thing that you and I are meant to long for is not a new shirt off of Amazon Prime. It's not the Christmas presents under the tree. The thing we're supposed to anticipate and long for is the glory that will be long to Jesus when he comes again. That's what we're supposed to long for. Every other longing is secondary, subsidiary to that. If it's not a longing rooted in that, it's an inappropriate longing. It's not a godly longing. All of it is in service to that great longing, that great ache that we feel and anticipation for. Now, how does thinking about Jesus coming to serve, not to be served, how does it help increase our anticipation and our longing? Go back to what we said before. The only pathway to true authority is through what? Service. Jesus, in laying down his life, what did he say in verse 28? I came to give my life as a ransom for many. In laying down his life, he has given the greatest act of service, and that is the pathway through which he has brought about his greatest glory. He will receive greatest glory because he lowered himself to the greatest act of service. And that increases our sense of anticipation because we know he will be vindicated. His act of service through death will be vindicated. There will come a day where the humility and lowliness of the cross will no longer be what 1 Corinthians says, foolishness to the world. It will be seen as God's perfect wisdom. He will be vindicated and that he will be exalted. We read Philippians chapter two, verses five through I think about nine, the beginning of our worship service. And what did it say? He humbled himself. He lowered himself to death, even death on a cross. And what is the next verse? Therefore, because he lowered himself, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. In other words, why will he be worshiped? Because he was a servant. Because he lowered himself. It's what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 20, verse 22, the text we read about the mom who's asking for the seats of honor. What does he say? You don't know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? In other words, do you want the authority of those seats? It comes through drinking this cup. It comes through service. It comes through sacrifice. My favorite example of this in all of scripture, I don't have time to read it for you because we need to come to the communion table. But Revelation chapter five, let me just describe the scene to you, okay? Picture it in your minds. In this text, a vision from John, and he sees the scrolls of God needing to be unrolled for God's purposes to go forward in the world. And as he looks at the scrolls and he stands before the throne of God, he begins to weep because there's no one who can open the scrolls. No one's worthy. No one has done enough. No one has accomplished the work that God has come to do. And the angel standing next to John says, don't cry anymore. And then he says this. Now there are these four other worldly creatures surrounding God's throne. There's 24 elders surrounding that throne. There are lightning and thunder in the throne, a sea of glass extending from it. We heard in chapter four. And now the angel says to John, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. And you think to yourself, oh, here's the one with authority. He's a lion. He's come to roar. He's the king in the line of David, the root of David. 
But in the very next verse, do you know what happens? Do not weep. The line of the tribe of Judah. Do not weep. The root of David has come and he has conquered. And then it says, he is what appears before John now is not a lion. What is it? It's a lamb who was slain. And all the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the whole chapter proceeds from the worship of four to the worship of 24 to the worship of, by the end of the chapter, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth worshiped the lamb who was slain, proclaiming, worthy are you to open the scrolls of God and bring his purposes and his kingdom forward in the world. Why? Not because you're the lion, because you're the lamb who was slain. Where did his authority come from? Through his service, through his sacrifice. The rest of that chapter, he's never called the lion again. He's called the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain. What is the message for you and I? Lower yourself. Embrace humility and lowliness. That is where authority comes from. You think about anticipation and longing. That worship in Revelation 5, do you find that when I describe that worship, something in your heart, a tuning fork, goes off and you think, oh, I can't wait. The more you think about Jesus coming not to be served, but to serve, the more that tuning fork will ring in your heart because that's where his worship was purchased and he will be vindicated. So much so that the entire world order and way of thinking will be overturned and all the humility and lowliness will be seen as greatness and authority and all the ego and bravado and empty wind-blowing will be seen for what it is, and that is vapor and nothingness. That day is coming. He came not to be served, but to serve. In this Advent season, I'll invite you to grow your anticipation and your longing for Jesus to come again and to receive the glory that is his and do it by embracing lowliness. Do it by embracing lowliness and watch your yieldedness to his mysterious ways, your sense of awe and wonder at the level and scale of what he has done. Watch your heart grow as you do. Well, it's very fitting that we would come to the table. Servers, why don't you come? We're gonna come to the Lord's table now. And as we come to these elements, church family, as always, when we come to the Lord's table, we come holding in our hand these elements that are, for today in particular, a good reminder, the ultimate reminder for us of how Christ brings the kingdom of God into the world through lowliness and humility and service. So I'm gonna invite you, as we hold these elements, we'll take them all together here in a moment, but as you hold the elements as they come to you, I wanna invite you to ask this question of the Lord and say, where do I need to embrace what these elements represent? Where do I need to embrace greater humility, greater lowliness, and greater service? Where are you calling me forward in that? Let him weigh that in your heart. He'll show you. He'll guide you.
He'll lead you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I will say to you, let the elements pass today. We really are proclaiming our belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the only means to eternal life, to a reconciled relationship with God. We believe that. We put all our weight and all our trust on it. And we're saying that when we take these elements and we would not want to invite you to do something that you have not yet believed and embraced. We're glad that you're here. We ask that you would hear the call of God to you to say, come and embrace the person of Jesus to be reconciled to me. So church family, let's come to the table now.